Okay, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer. Reason for this is so we can make sure that we are in right relationship with the Lord. Scripture says that when we sin, we are no longer walking according to the Spirit. We're walking according to the sin nature. We're walking in the darkness. Uh, we're walking in the power of the flesh. We're not abiding in Christ. The way to recover is simply to admit, acknowledge our sins to God the Father, and instantly we're forgiven of those sins and all sins so that we are cleansed of all unrighteousness. And then we can resume our walk by the Spirit. So we'll bow our heads together, and after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're very grateful for a good report from Jeff and Doug about their trip down to Brazil for their safety on the trip and for the opportunity they had to teach the Word and to minister to uh, those folks down there. And we're very thankful for the impact your Word has. And, Father, we pray that it would continue to have an impact in the coming, coming weeks and months. Father, we're thankful for the fact that we can come together as a congregation and we can bring requests before you. We especially pray for our nation. We pray for our city at this time as the election is coming up. Pray for the election of mayor. Uh, Many other uh, items are on the ballot, city council offices and others. We pray that you would raise up some men and women who have firm convictions that are based on the word of God that can lead the city. We pray that this uh, Proposition 1 will uh, be rejected by the city and that we will not be a a, a poster city for... uh, homosexual perversion. Father, we pray that you would continue to provide for the needs of this congregation. We thank you for your word, for the focus upon your word, and Father, we pray that we might continue to uh, honor and glorify you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in 1 Samuel, but I want you to start, I want to start by going to 1 Corinthians in the New Testament. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, great chapter in in the New Testament. Now, what we're going to look at in 1 Samuel tonight is this whole issue in these terms that are very confusing for a lot of Christians, and they are confusing because they've been abused a lot and misused and misdefined by a lot of different people in a lot of different contexts. And you see the words up there on the title for the message, Confession, which is in 1 John 1, 9, Godly Sorrow, which is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Repentance, which is found in a number of different places throughout both the Old and New Testament. And and I'm adding the word change because that's essentially what, what uh, repentance is talking about. In our study in 1 Samuel, what we've seen is that God is preparing to deliver uh, Israel by great change. And if you note, 
After 30 hours of study in 1 Samuel, we are about at the end of this first division. The first seven chapters focus on, focuses on how God has set Israel up to change the direction they've been going through this whole horrid period of the judge, judges, a spiritual dark age in Israel's history where they were uh, they were, had totally succumbed to moral and spiritual relativism, and they were uh, going through these, this terrible cycle of uh, disobedience and discipline before they would probably turn, before they would turn to God for for deliverance. What we saw in the last in this last section in two B of how God orchestrates the collapse of the old order. And that was covered in 1 Samuel 2, 11 to 4, 22. And then uh, Yahweh established the means for delivering Israel in 5, 1 to 6, 21, which we just finished. And then tonight we're going to begin looking at chapter 7, break it down into two messages probably, where God begins to um, provide a deliverance begins to grant, that should be grant, not grand, uh, begins to grant a deliverance to the nation. And we'll probably just uh, focus on verses 2 through 4 tonight. Now, I want you. the reason I had you turn to uh, 1 Corinthians is 1 Corinthians tells us why it's important to study the Old Testament. Chapter 10 begins, and I just want to read through the first five verses to set the context. He's talking about what happened during the Exodus generation. He says, moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers, that would be uh, the Jewish patriarchs, the Jewish fathers, especially the Exodus generation, that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. The cloud is the Shekinah, uh, is a symbol of the Shekinah presence, the dwelling presence of God with Israel that led uh, Israel out of Egypt. They all passed through the sea, that is, through the Red Sea. That was a sign of Israel's redemption as they're brought out of slavery in Egypt. They were all baptized, that is, they're identified into Moses by means of the cloud and by means of the sea. This is a, a parallel picture to baptism uh, that we have, uh, ba- believers' baptism in Christ and baptism by the by the Holy Spirit. It's a, they're, they're all very closely connected. They all ate the same spiritual food, which was manna. Remember, Jesus referred to that and said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And they all drank the same uh, spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Great identification of the imagery there that is the rock of Christ that Christ is our rock, and that's a title for for uh, God all through the Old Testament. But then we see the negative in verse 5. With most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. They rejected him. They complained about his provision. They griped, uh, and they rebelled against the authorities that God set up. Now, verse 6. Now, these things became our examples. That's what the Old Testament does. That's, that's its framework. And what I, we see doctrinal principles in the New Testament that are abstract, but they're pictured by things that happen in the Old Testament. So when we're studying topics like 
repentance and confession. We go to the Old Testament to see how that played itself out in the real-time lives of, of the Israelites. These things, referring to all those events that happened with the Exodus generation, these things became our examples to the intent or for the purpose that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. We are to learn from their negative examples. Now, now then Paul goes through a whole list of the various uh, sins and acts of disobedience that characterize that generation in the next uh, four verses. And then we come down to verse 11. Now, all these things happen to them as examples. That's twice uh, under God the Holy Spirit that Paul says this is an example for us. All these things happen to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom... That's referring to us. We're the ones upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Everything from the Old Testament built to Christ. Christ lays the foundation for the church age. Everything's targeted towards uh, a provision for uh, church age believers. Now, skip down to verse 13. Verse 13 is a promise. We've heard it mentioned. I've quoted it many times, especially in our study of First, uh, First Peter as we're studying testing because the word that's translated temptation is also the word that's translated, that's translated uh, uh, temptation. Testing and temptation. A tempt, temptation is something that tests whether we're going to be obedient or whether we're going to be disobedient. And 1 Corinthians 10.13 says that no... Uh, temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. What's interesting is that phrase, common to man, translates one word in the Greek, which basically means means that. It means that which is typical of the human race, that which is humanly, something like that. It, it, it's difficult to translate it with just one word. But God is faithful will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Now, this is a great principle here, and it reminds us that we're in a test. We've been studying this. A lot of this applies to what we've been studying in First Peter on Thursday night, and that is that there is a testing of our faith. In, in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, we read that we are to count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials or tests, same word there, parasmas, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and that this is also referred to in Romans chapter 5, verses uh, uh, 3 through 5, talking also about the role of testing and adversity in the life of a believer. So this is what's happening back in the Old Testament. Samuel is an, an example of this. And so I want to review something. Some of you have never seen this chart. Others of you have probably forgotten it. And this is a flow chart for understanding the spiritual life. We come to the cross, we hear the gospel, we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we trust in him, and at that point we are eternally saved. We can't lose that salvation. And as we begin to grow as a Christian, God is going to take us through various tests. 
We're going to have pop quizzes when we don't expect it. We're going to have uh, major exams at different times. And these are identified in James as tests of doctrine. They test our faith. That is what we believe. We've come to learn something. We've come to understand something. And now the Lord's going to take us through a a real-time situation to see if we can apply what we've learned in the classroom to a real-time experience. And so what this brings into focus is that we have to make a decision. And so life is filled with choices, and our life becomes what it's going to be as a result of these choices that we make. And so we have to decide how we're going to respond to this test. Are we going to apply the word, or are we going to handle it on our own through our sin nature? So the issue here is volition. And when we choose to be obedient and we exercise positive volition, then we're operating in this upper cycle. This is the cycle of of walking by the Spirit. This is a cycle when we're walking in the life. uh, Those terms, of course, relate to us as church-age believers. In the Old Testament, they were just walking in wisdom. They were just exercising the faith rest drill and trusting God because they didn't have the indwelling or the filling of the Holy Spirit uh, to guide them. But what we know for church-age believers, for us, is that as we go through these tests of doctrine, the result is that as we're walking by God the Holy Spirit, it produces a divine good. It produces that which has eternal value. We experience life, not eternal life in the sense of going to heaven, but the abundant life that Jesus has for us. In John 10, Jesus said, I came not like the thief to steal and destroy. I came to give life and to give it abundantly right here and now. So there's life, and Romans 12.2, when we obey the Lord, it gives proof or evidence of the goodness of his plan, that as we walk, that develops steadfast endurance. The testing of your faith produces endurance. We have to practice the word of God. The more we practice it, the better we become at applying it, and it builds strength and endurance, and that eventually leads to being a mature believer. But we don't always follow that path. Often we go in the other direction, and the result is we produce sin, which is overt sin, sins of the tongue, mental attitude sins. We also can live morally. We can engage in spiritual things in the power of the sin nature, and we call that human good. But it leads to death. This is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 6. It's not spiritual death. It's not eternal death. It's that we experience a death-like existence. We're living like we're spiritually dead. We're living like an unbeliever, and we're not experiencing the blessings that God has for us. This leads to spiritual weakness and instability. We can regress spiritually And we can even develop a hardened heart. Now, this is a situation you've got with Israel at this particular time in the period of the judges. They are in rebellion against God. They are living in uh, in sin. They are uh, worshiping the Baalim and the Ashtoreth. They're completely given over to the fertility gods and goddesses, and they've rejected the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and so God is bringing curses upon them, the curses that are outlined in uh, Leviticus chapter 26 
and Deuteronomy 28. If you read through those chapters, which we've done before, and we won't do it tonight, if you read through those chapters, what you'll see is that God says, if you obey me, then I will bless you. They'll have all kinds of blessing. They will have um, material blessing. They'll have agricultural blessing. They'll have meteorological blessing. And God will take care of them. They will have military blessing that they will put to, to flight the enemy. All of these things will be empowered by God because they're walking in obedience. But on the other hand, uh, Leviticus lists five different cycles or five different series of degrading judgments that God will bring on on Israel, the five cycles of discipline. The last one is that God says, I'll wash my hands of you and you'll go out of the land and you will be scattered among all of the nations. But there's always the promise that if they return to him, if they turn to him, then God will bring them back uh, back to the land. So Israel is living down here in this area, total rebellion against God. And God has, in order for God to change the nation and to bring them to that point where they're going to have the messianic king, the human king, David, who will bring them to a level of prosperity and a golden age, they're going to have to change spiritually. God cannot bless them while they're in the circumstances that they are in. The same is true for us. So for us, we need to, we, we live our Christian life. We're either living up here, walking by the Spirit, or we're living down here under sin nature control, one or the other. Now, when we die, we all appear after the rapture at the judgment seat of Christ. At the judgment seat of Christ, those who have, for, for living maximum time, walking by the Spirit, they'll have rewards and inheritance. For those who have spent most of their time uh, wasting it under sin nature control, there's a loss of rewards and temporary shame. Now, I've always thought this was a great chart for just helping us conceptualize uh, the process of the Christian life. We're looking at it another way. Here we have phase one, salvation. We'll talk about the three stages or phases of salvation a little later on. This is phase one. This is phase two. This is the spiritual life. This is how we grow, how we mature. And then this is what happens in relation to phase three when we're absent from the body, face to face with the Lord, and then there's the judgment seat of Christ. So that's the pattern. Okay, now we can see how we can learn and apply principles from Israel as a result of uh, of what we read in, in 1 Samuel 7 and applying it to this flowchart uh, for, the, for the Christian life. Now remember, this period that we're talking about is the period of the judges. So I want you to turn back, before we get to Samuel, I want you to turn back past 1 Samuel, and I want you to turn with me to Judges chapter 2, verse 11. Judges chapter 211. This is after the death of Joshua, the conquest generation. This is the next generation coming up, and they've compromised with the inhabitants of the land. They've said, we'd rather not kill every one of them. We don't really want to annihilate every man, woman, and child. We don't want to kill all their livestock. So we're just going to compromise with them. And before long, they assimilated with them, 
and they were beginning to live their life that was no different from the Canaanites, no different from the pagans. They didn't live a life that was to be separate, which is what God had called for. Remember last week we studied the holiness of God, and the holiness of God refers to his uniqueness, his distinctiveness, and God said to Israel over and over and over again all through Deuteronomy, be holy for I am holy. Now that live a distinct life, be separate from the nations, live a life separated unto me, and I will bless you. And they failed to do that, and so they are under divine judgment. We see the summary of the cycle here in Judges 2, starting in verse 11. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals. Now, just as a side note here, many people use the word evil to describe a lot of different things. What does the Bible say about the word evil? You read through Judges, you read through Samuel, read through Kings, over and over and over again, what follows a statement that Israel did evil is that they served the false gods. Evil is fundamentally defined religiously as serving another God other than the God of the Bible. Serving God means to walk in obedience to him. So doing evil is to disobey God, is to act as if God does not exist, to act as if God has not spoken. They did evil, they served the Baals, and they forsook the Lord God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, they provoked the Lord to anger, and they forsook the Lord and served the Baal and the Ashtoreth. So this just goes on, and what we see, this reference to anger, is a reference to the judgment, the justice of God. And it's an anthropomorphism. It, it, it is, excuse me, an anthropopathism. It is assigning to God an emotion he doesn't actually possess. And, and that's because when we look at the Greek for wrath or anger, it's basically a figure of speech saying that his nose burned. Now, God doesn't have an actual nose. So it's an anthropomorphism in that it's assigning a human feature, a biological or physical feature to God that he doesn't actually possess in order to communicate something uh, to us about his plans and his policy. Now, an anthropopathism is doing the same kind of thing except with an emotion. But what we have with the term anger is it's real mixed up because it's an anthropomorphism that serves as an anthropopathism, now that everybody's confused. Because literally what it is saying is God's nose burned at the people, which means that God was angry. But but all of that is to simply point out that God is acting in extreme judgment on them. Just as we have in in courtrooms today, we'll say, well, boy, the judge was really mad at me and threw the book at me. Well, the judge may not have been emotional at all. The phrase, he threw the book at me, doesn't mean he literally picked up a book and threw it at me. It means that he judged me according to the, the harshness of the law. That's the idea. So what we see is this cycle defined here, verse 15, uh, Whenever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who delivered him. That's the grace of God. They didn't deserve it, but when they 
uh, after they had been under the heel of an oppressor for a while, they cried out to the Lord for deliverance, and God would send a deliverer, one of the judges. He raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from their way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord. Over and over and over again, they went through that same cycle. I'm not going to ask for hands for anybody who's gone through that same kind of cycle. That is typical of most people as we go through these kinds of cycles, and we have to break that cycle of disobedience and discipline. And the only way to do it in the church age is to start walking by the Spirit and to actually implement change, which is the term turn, which we find in our passage. So let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 7 and see what we find here. Now remember the last time in chapters uh, 5 and 6, we've seen the travels of the ark. God has been on a Holy Land tour with the Ark of the Covenant, and he's gone from up north of Tel Aviv down to uh, uh, Gaza and Gath, and uh, now he's gone with the Ark to uh, uh, Kiriath-Jerim, which is just to the uh, west of, of Jerusalem. And so the men of Kiriath-Jerim came, took the Ark of the Lord, and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill. Now, we don't know where that was. I've been to that area. Some of you have been there with me. That's, there's a lot of hills there. So um, uh, we don't know which one it was. We don't know who this Abinadab was or who this Eleazar was. Uh, but the name Eleazar is a pretty common name in the, among Levites, so it's, we can assume that this was the house of a priest. And they were to watch over and keep the ark uh, safe there in their home. Verse 2, as you notice, as a paragraph mark, this is really where the chapter break should have come. So it was that the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time, and it was there 20 years. Now, this helps us with chronology, and I'm not going to get off on that rabbit trail right now, but basically what's happened is that, that another 20 years has gone by since the Battle of Aphek, when the ark was lost. And this is another dark period in this cycle of discipline and disobedience in Israel's history. They've just been given this great example of how God can give them victory. God, God basically defeated and, and killed a, a vast number of Philistines all by himself. As the ark was taken through the five cities of the, the five lords of the Philistines, they, God brought a plague upon them, and tens of thousands died. And so God has demonstrated that all they need to do is obey him, and he'll take care of their enemies. And so this has been a great example for them, but they are not willing to follow that example. And so uh, it's a very dark time, economic depression, drought, hardship. All of this was part of the five cycles of discipline, and throughout this time, they are under the tyranny of the Philistines. And that's what's described at the very end of verse 2. And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. So this is an important term to stop and pay attention to, because this is often what happens to each of us whenever God starts taking us through some divine discipline. 
we can we lament that divine discipline because because it's not pleasant and we're either sorry because we got caught or we're sorry because we are being punished but rarely are we sorry so that we realize how we've grieved God and turn to God in obedience This is what Samuel will say to them in verse 3. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you, and prepare your hearts for the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. It's part of that that conditional structure of the Mosaic Law. If you obey me, God says, then I will do this for you. If you don't obey me, then I'm going to do that for you. And so this is what Samuel is doing. This is the role of the prophet. The prophet functions as the theocratic prosecutor. Now, the word theocracy means that God rules. And under the Mosaic law, Israel is set up at this time as a theocracy. Remember, they don't have a king yet. That's why they say there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So the theocratic prosecutor, in other words, the defense attorney, the attorney general who is going to prosecute Israel for disobedience to the law is the prophet, and that's the primary role of the prophet. Now, a prophet is going to come, and he's going to say, you have violated the law in these ways, and the result of this is God's going to bring judgment upon you in the future. And sometimes he describes what that future is going to look like. That's why we normally think of a prophet as somebody who foretells the future. But the primary focus of the prophet is to bring judgment upon the nation, the divine representative who is indicting the nation for their disobedience. And the solution for disobedience that we find all the way through the scripture is to turn back to God. The word that we use in some contexts is repentance. Repentance often translates a synonym uh, for this word that we have here, uh, the synonym is Naham. Here we have the word Shuv. And uh, when uh, is, an Israelite uh, turns back to God, they do a, a Teshuvah. They, they repent. They turn back to God. That's, that's modern, uh, modern Hebrew language. So we see that this is the idea in many passages in the Old Testament. God tells them in Deuteronomy 4.30, when you are in distress... And all these things come upon you. That is, all these promises of discipline and judgment that I've told you about. When all these things come upon you in the latter days, and remember, latter days refers to the latter days of Israel, latter days of the church. This would be the latter days of Israel, which is the tribulation period. When you're in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord and obey his voice, turning to the Lord isn't just saying, giving lip service to it and saying, okay, I'm going, to, I'm going to turn to the Lord. Notice it's always connected or almost always connected with another verb. When you return to the Lord, what are you going to do? You're going to obey him. Those two things go together. So when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, that is when God is going to uh, bless you. Uh, I just threw this one in. 
because I thought this was a really interesting use of the word shuv, to turn. Therefore, know this day and consider it in your heart. The word consider is the word shuv, to turn it in your heart. This is the idea of meditation, to think about the word and to turn it over and over in your mind as you think about it and examine it thoughtfully. I just thought that was an interesting use of the word turn, very, very illustrative. Okay, back to the idea of turning in obedience. Deuteronomy 30, verses 1 through 3. Now, this is an important passage. We've studied this many, many times. Deuteronomy 28 lists the blessings and the curses. Deuteronomy 29 goes on to talk about what will happen to Israel when they are disobedient, ultimately culminating in the fact that they're going to be removed from the land under the fifth cycle of discipline, that that they will be scattered among all of the nations throughout all of the world. And then we come to God's grace promise in uh, chapter 30, verses 1 through 3. Now it shall come to pass when all these things have come upon you, there's that very similar to Deuteronomy 4.30. All these things are all these judgments of chapter 28 and 29. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind where? Among all the nations. When you're in the United States and you're in Canada and you're in Mexico and you're in Uruguay and Argentina and Brazil, and when you're in uh, Morocco and Tunisia and Spain and Italy and Britain and Germany and Holland and Norway, when you're scattered throughout all these places in Russia, in Ukraine, in Turkey, Iraq, Iran, when you are scattered among all these nations and you call these things to mind... Where the Lord your God drives the nation where the Lord your God drives you, and you shuv, and you return to the Lord your God and obey. Notice return and obey. Those things go together, like peanut butter and jelly. When you return to the Lord uh, and obey his voice according to all that I command you today, you and your children with all your heart and with all your soul. Now God's not saying an absolute perfection, because he knows that we're frail, that we're made of flesh. But this is, this is like when you read through David, as we'll get to him later on, when you read about David, and God blesses David because David's a man after his own heart. And then you read about all the things that David did and all the sin in David's life. Uh, and what, what's encouraging about that is David's bottom line was, I want to live my life to please God, but i got a sin nature, and I screw up by the numbers sometimes. But I, want to, I just want to please God, even though I make mistakes. God says, that's a man after my own heart. In contrast to Saul, who really didn't want to obey God, he just, he, he, he just lived life the way he wanted to. That's the contrast. So turning to the God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength isn't a, an idiom of perfection. It's, an, it, it, it's a summary of your basic desire of your soul, the basic focus of your volition. Verse 30, and so the key is returning to the Lord. And then in verse 3, it says that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where the Lord your God has scattered you. When will that occur? That occurs at the end of the tribulation because the return that occurred after, after the Babylonian captivity was only a partial return. 
it wasn't from all the nations that God had scattered them. They didn't all return from Egypt or from Asia Minor or some had already uh, gone up to, to uh, Italy and in, into Europe. Uh, it was only, it was primarily about 98% a return from Babylon. So this is really not fulfilled until the uh, end times. Jeremiah uses the word a lot. He says, return you backsliding children, and I will heal your backsliding. See, that's the grace of God. All you have to do is turn. Indeed, we do come to you, they say, for you are the Lord our God. Uh, Jeremiah 4.1, if you will return, O Israel, return to me, and if you will put away your abominations out of my sight, then you shall not be moved. And in Jeremiah 18.8, if that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring about it. Now, this is a really good verse. It's better than the one everybody quotes out of Second Chronicles 7.14. Second Chronicles 7.14 is a verse, if my people who are called by my name uh, will turn to me, um, I will, uh, and it goes on, I can't remember the rest of it, but that's not a, that's a verse, if my people, who are my people? Israel. That has no application to anybody else, period. Jeremiah 18.8 does. This is a statement that applies to all nations. If that nation, any nation, against whom I've spoken, turns from its evil. That's the condition. So now let's go back and look at 1 Samuel uh, 7, verse 2. If we read this, So it was that the ark remained in Kirath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented. They are sorrowful. This is an emotional term. This is not a mental attitude term. They are grieving. This is the Greek word naha, uh, and it means to lament. It means to experience profound grief, the kind of grief that may last for months or years. Okay, It's a very strong term uh, to lament, to be extremely sorrowful. And so this is, this is where they are. Now, uh, what should they do about that? See, this is a problem that we have. Is that when we when we really we, we get away from the Lord and we sin and we know we've done wrong, you have two options. One, when God starts disciplining us, and that's what's happened here, they've gone through divine judgment, they're either going to uh they're either going to be sorry because they got caught or they're getting punished, or it can be used to move them to obedience. It's just an emotion. It's what you do with the emotion that determines whether it's a sin or not. That's the key thing. We have all kinds of emotional responses. We grieve when somebody dies. Well, we can turn that grief into depression, or we can turn that grief into service to the Lord. Even though we may still grieve, we still have the joy of the Lord. It's interesting. Uh, we, we have problems as Americans with emotion, and as Christians, we have problems with emotion. This is uh, this is Jeremiah saying, uh, "You said, woe is me now, for the Lord has added grief to my sorrow." This is Jeremiah, and Jeremiah is not walking in disobedience. This shows that as he's seeing his nation crumble around him and being overrun by the Babylonians, that he has experienced deep and profound grief. It's so profound that he wrote a book about it. Guess what it was called? Lamentations. Lamentations. 
And that is legitimate. That doesn't mean, oh, well, he should have just trusted the Lord and just moved on. He was trusting the Lord, and he was moving on, but that doesn't mean he didn't have uh, an emotional response to what took place. His home was destroyed. His The temple of God was destroyed. The city of God was destroyed. So what we see here in 1 Samuel 3 and 4 is this emphasis on their their lamentation in verse 2, and then Samuel's response that they need to turn to the Lord. So what this is the question that we should ask. What is the relationship between sorrow, grief, lamentation, uh, repentance, confession, and change? How do these things fit together? Because there have been a lot of people who've really stumbled over this. There are some people who think that repentance is basically emotional remorse and that every time we sin, every time we fail God, we need to feel something. And, you know, I've often said that doesn't always happen. There are aspects of each of our personalities where we have some real comfort zones in sinning. And it may be emotional sinning. It may be physical sinning, it may be um, mental attitude sinning, it may be it, it just a default position of our sin nature. And we've gotten a little comfortable with our sin nature since we were three years old. And the older you get, the more you realize that there's some sins that you commit a lot. Now, you don't want to get too comfortable with them, and you really don't want to justify them. But Maybe when you were 13, 14, 15 years old and you first became aware of sin and your need to confess sin and that this this was an act of disobedience against God, that initially you were pretty shocked and disappointed that you got angry or lost your temper or you uh, griped a lot or you were a grumpy person or uh, whatever it might be. Uh, and, and you thought, well, I, I've got these sins and it's just terrible and you felt bad about it. Well, that was when you were 12, 13, or 14 years of age. Now you're 55, 65, 75, and you know that's probably not going to ever leave you. And you can't go to God and say, oh, Lord, I just feel so terrible. You can't manufacture those feelings of remorse that were genuine when you were 12 or 13. Because now you've committed that sin 28,372 times, and if you go to God and say, God, I'm not going to do this again. I'm sorry. Just, just take away the punishment. God's omniscient. He's saying, you're going to do this 39,742 more times. Don't pull the wool over my eyes. I know that you're not going to pull that off. Okay? So we got to avoid just getting comfortable with the sin and rationalizing and justifying it. But on the other hand, we know that there are certain sins in our lives that we just can't work up a whole lot of remorse and regret over anymore. So we have to understand what this word repentance means. Now, this is really interesting when I go over to uh, Russia, go over to Ukraine and teach, because the way the Russian Bible translates uh, repentance, metanoia, is to translate it as remorse or regret. And what we'll see here is that's not a correct translation. But if you look the word repentance up in an English dictionary, one of the legitimate meanings for it in English is remorse or regret. But that is not what the Bible's talking about when it talks about repentance. And confession's another term that people get very confused about. Some people think that that confession 
means that we have to look at the sin the same way God does, and that's called an etymological fallacy. Etymology is the study of words and how words are put together. And so you have a compound word that was created, homo meaning the same, like homosexual, attraction for the same sex. So you have the word homo and the word legeo, which means to say something. So some people look at that and say, oh, that means to say the same thing as. Usage defines a term, not etymology. Etymology may get us close to a ballpark, but how a word is used determines its, its meaning. And the word homo legeo was a word that was used in the courtroom that when a criminal comes up, stands before the judge, and the judge says, well, did you do this? The criminal would homo legeo and say, yes, I did that. That's confession. It is the admission or acknowledgement of guilt. It doesn't matter. Y'all have gone through this. Almost everybody here has probably had a, uh, had a ticket, a speeding ticket of some kind, and you didn't think it was just, and you went down and tried to plead your case with the, with the judge. And, um, and your emotion just doesn't get you anywhere with that judge. He just doesn't care. You know, he just wants to know, did you do it or not? Fine's going to be 200 bucks. Move on. Next case. That's what a confession is. God's omniscient. You, you know, people try to pull the wool over God's eyes and bargain with him and everything, and, and, and that, that's a very superficial view of God. Now, one of the passages where we do have a problem here, but if you understand what the passage is saying, it's really a good passage, is in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. So I, just turn with me there. We're going to spend some time here in this 2 Corinthians passage. This is a very good passage, but it is universally poorly translated. And that has always surprised me because the men who do these translations are not grammatical idiots. But they they violate a crucial fundamental grammatical rule when they translate a key phrase here. Now, we have several key words that are here probably have this slide out of order. Let me just run the key words here in Greek. The first word is the word lupeo. Now, the word lupeo is one we studied a little bit in First Peter. It's a word that normally means uh, sorrow. It can mean grief. Paul says in First Thessalonians 4, we grieve lupeo, but not like those who have no hope. Okay, so it refers to grief or sorrow. It can be intensified with a number of prefixes, but that's the, the root verb. Then you have this other phrase, katatheon. It, uh, kata is a preposition, takes the accusative ending, so it's theon, but it's theos is the nominative. And it means according to God. You have a preposition, kata, which means according to a standard, and then you have the noun object of the preposition, which is theos, according to the standard of God. Now, it's translated godly sorrow in almost every translation I consulted. Now, here's the issue. Kata is a preposition that's not even... You don't have a preposition in godly sorrow, do you? You have an adverb. Any, there's some adjectives that take L-Y, and in, in, and in English, usually you look at an L-Y, and that's an adverb. It's almost, But there's some adjectives that take it, and in Old English... Uh, added that meaning God-like. So it would say God-like sorrow. No, that's not quite what it's trying to say here. It's a sorrow according to God. And I would 
sort of tra- uh, sort of paraphrase this a stand uh, a sorrow according to God's standard. It's not a godly sorrow. There's no adverb in the Greek. There's just a preposition and a noun. Then we have these other two words. And I remember when I first learned this, and uh, I was teaching. Uh, I was teaching somewhere, and somebody, and I was teaching somebody else's notes, and it was on this passage, and made this made the point that there are two different Greek words here. Metanoia is the noun, which means a change of mind. Usually, it's translated repentance, but it's a change of mind. Meta means after. Noia is from the word nous, which means mind. So it's an afterthought or a change of mind, change of thinking, uh, which produces a change in living. The emphasis in metanoia is that noia, it's on thinking, it's on the mind. Metamelamize, the other word. Metamelamize, a word that means emotional regret. It's when you are been on a diet and you go out and you have a big piece of cake with lots of ice cream on it smothered in chocolate sauce and you wake up the next morning and you feel a little bad from all that sugar and you go, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But, you, you know, given the option, you'd do it again 99.9% of the time. And you'd still regret it the next day, but you wouldn't change anything. It's just emotional regret. You wish you hadn't have done it, but you'd always make that same choice. I'm a master at that when it comes to diets. Okay? Now, let's look at the passage. Paul says... <coughs> To the Corinthians, now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry. See, what's happened here, I'll go through the issue, is that he's really blasted them in a previous letter. He has just rebuked them and reprimanded them and ripped them up one side and down the other for the way they have failed to deal with a situation related to a false teacher and sin in their congregation. And so he just let him have it. And he's saying, now, I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. See, the goal wasn't to make him feel bad, just to grieve over it or have pain, but to ultimately to change. For you were made sorry, there's that same word, lupeo again, in a godly manner. According to God, you were made sorry according to God's standard, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. In other words, this word suffer loss is found over in 1 Corinthians 3 with those uh, spiritual life failures who show up at the judgment seat of Christ, and they don't have any rewards, but they are saved yet as through fire. They suffer the loss of rewards. Okay, so that's the idea here. Paul is saying you need to move forward. And even if I had to ream you out, the purpose was to get your attention so you would change. And when you changed, then you wouldn't suffer loss from us in anything. You wouldn't suffer loss, ultimately, the judgment seat of Christ. For godly sorrow, that is sorrow according to God, produces repentance. If it's just emotion, it doesn't lead to repentance. It's just that regret the morning after. Okay, produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted. See, there's that word, ah, metamelatos, that's from metamelami, and the negative there at the beginning, the a, means not to be regretted. 
but the sorrow of the world produces death. See, here the sorrow of the world refers to just emotional remorse. You just feel bad about it, but you don't do anything about it. And that leads to death, not eternal death, not spiritual death, but a death-like existence, carnal death. Remember, there's seven different kinds of death in the Bible. And this is carnal death. You're living like a spiritually dead person. Then he says in verse 11, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed according to God, what diligence it produced in you. See, it, it ended up changing you, and you changed from what you were doing, which was spiritual, spiritual disobedience, to spiritual obedience. So now it's produced diligence, indignation, fear, a strong desire to serve God, zeal, vindication, moving on beyond that. Okay, now let's just get pick up a little context here of Second Corinthians. This is, this is kind of a mare's nest to parse all this together, but I'll try to make it simple. Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthians. How do I do this? One and three, so that's almost UT, one and three are lost. The second one is 1 Corinthians, and the fourth one is 2 Corinthians. Does that make sense? Okay. Now remember, how many letters did Paul write on his first first missionary journey? One. How many did he write on his second missionary journey? What were they? First and Second Thessalonians. How many did he write on his third missionary journey? Three. Three. Yeah, Jeff, work work those numbers a little better. One first journey one, second journey two, third journey three, and then the fourth journey, which is his when he's taken in prison to Rome, he writes the four prison, prison epistles. Okay, so he wrote Galatians after the first journey. He wrote First and Second Thessalonians while he's on the second journey. And in the third journey, as he's come back, he sets up a school at Tyrannus in Ephesus. Early on, he writes a letter to to the Corinthians, which is one that we don't know anything about. But the second letter, but this first letter is mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. It's misunderstood by the Corinthians, so when he writes the second letter to them, which is 1 Corinthians, he's trying to straighten them out because of their reactions and misunderstandings to the the first letter. Then, um, uh, so the, then he had to write a third letter, and the third letter is a letter that is a strong rebuke and, and reprimand. And that doesn't fit. We get that from what he says about it in in, in uh, Second Corinthians. He says, "If anyone has caused grief, he has not grieved me, but all of you to some ex- extent, not to be too severe." And then in seven twelve, he says, "Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you." Both of these, he's talking about the fact that he really had to ream them out. And they had to deal with this this problem of this uh, man in the congregation. Now, some people think that this person that's causing the problem is the person who was married to his stepmother that they were supposed to discipline in First Corinthians chapter five, and that was considered incest. But that's that is probably doesn't fit the strong language uh, that he uses uh, when talking about this particular. Uh, particular situation. 
So Paul writes the first epistle, which they could get confused about. Then he writes 1 Corinthians. Then he made a quick visit to Corinth, which is mentioned in 2 Corinthians 2.1, uh, which I have here. But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. So when he made that second journey, he, he went there. It was a painful journey because he had to really deal with some problems there, and these were uh, personal problems. And it's always hard for a, for a shepherd, for a pastor, to deal with the sheep when the sheep get crossways with each other. And that happens in congregations. You have one person does one thing, somebody does something else, then they get mad at each other, and then you've got a problem. And if that's not dealt with, it can leak out, and through gossip and other things can really cause problems within a congregation. So like any good pastor, Paul felt it very deeply. That's why he says, I came to you in sorrow or in grief or in pain. It was difficult for Paul. And it's always difficult for a pastor who's trying to deal with sheep that are uh, crossways with each other and causing problems within the congregation. So after he made that second visit, then uh, he goes back to Ephesus, and he apparently wrote a, a third letter, which was lost because it was not canonical. God did not intend for it to be preserved. And that was the harsh reprimand uh, that they're dealing with. Here's a couple other passages, a stronger passage than I mentioned earlier. He said, For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who's made sorrowful by me? And I wrote this very thing to you, lest when I came I should have sorrow over those from whom I ought to have joy, having confidence in you all that my joy is the joy of you all. So he's talking about the fact that that he had to really grieve them uh, by reprimanding them in that in that third letter. So it's probable that the person that they're that's causing the problem that they're not dealing with is a false teacher. It's one of the Judaizers that was in the congregation, and Paul is saying they have to kick him out of the congregation. They finally did, and then he's coming back, and he's saying you've overreacted. Now that he's repented, now that he's changed his mind and he's straightened out, you need to welcome him back and not keep him out in the cold, not keep him away from the congregation. So he's going to be telling them that they need to treat this individual in grace. Now, this whole epistle is a very personal letter from Paul that he writes to them because after causing them so much sorrow and grief through this, this harsh reprimand of the third letter, he's now he's created a situation where some of them aren't trusting him, some of them have been swayed by the false teachers who've challenged his, his authority, and now he is going, he's inviting them basically to, to come back and to reunite and to focus on their spiritual growth. When we come to chapter uh, 6, verse 1, he says, We then, as workers together with him, also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So he's pleading with them to be restored to fellowship with one another. And he says, For he says, quoting from the Old Testament, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Now, what do we mean by salvation here? He goes on and uses it again. He says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, this is a use where salvation isn't referring to getting into heaven. 
because he's writing to the Corinthians, it's real clear that the people in this congregation are saved, even though they're carnal and they've been screwed up, and he's trying to straighten everything out. You have to remember that the word salvation is used three ways. It's used in phase one to describe being saved from the penalty of sin. In an instant of time, we trust in Christ and we're saved from the penalty of sin. Then it's used to describe being saved from the power of sin, the whole process of our spiritual growth. Phase two is a spiritual life. And then phase three is being saved from the presence of sin when we're absent from the body and face to face with the Lord. Many times the word salvation is used in the New Testament to refer to phase two. The whole book of Romans uses salvation to refer to phase two. It's never a synonym for justification. Many times in other passages, it's used that same way. That's how Paul's using it here. They need to have deliverance from this, this division that's occurred within the congregation. So he talks about then, at that point, he goes on to talk about his own ministry, and he says, we give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. But in all things, we commend ourselves as ministers of God. And then he goes through this litany. If you've never read it, I don't have time to read it tonight. From about verse 4 down to verse 11, Paul is talking about all the things he went through, rejection, beatings, imprisonment, shipwrecks, everything, uh, basically giving his resume that he cares so deeply about the Corinthians that he's gone through all of this, this personal trauma for their sake, and he's not asking anything in return other than they grow, uh, they grow spiritually. Then he comes to chapter 7, verse 1. At the end of chapter 6, at the end of chapter 6, Paul quotes from the episode in number 16 when you have the rebellion of Korah, where these priests who aligned themselves with Korah are rebelling against Moses. It's a perfect analogy because the Corinthians are rebelling against the authority of Paul. So he quotes from that episode at the end of, of uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 to make the point that they need to separate from the evildoers and their congreg- congregation, the false teachers, just as the Jews had to separate from the evildoers in Israel, those who were rebelling with, with Korah. And the Korah and those priests, and God dealt with the harshly. Remember, there was an earthquake, the earth opened up, and those priests were all sucked into the earth, and boom, that was it, they were gone. That was God's judgment. So, those quotes, he says at the beginning of verse 1, therefore having these promises, these statements from God, that we were to separate from the evildoers. Let us cleanse ourselves. That's the same word used in 1 John 1, 9, confession of sin. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is the starting point. Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness. This is dealing with sanctification, phase two, and the fear of God. Oh, and then in verse two, he says, open your hearts to us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. So at that point, in those next few verses, Paul restates his appeal for them to be restored in fellowship to them. And that leads to verse 8. Now, as we wrap up here, I'm just going to give you an expanded translation to help you understand what Paul is saying here, because these translations of godly sorrow really does sort of muddy the water. 
What Paul is saying is, even if I made you feel bad, I wrote that letter and reprimanded you and rebuked you. I wasn't trying to make you feel bad for the sake of making you feel bad. I was trying to make you feel bad so it would move you to change. So he says, even if I made you feel bad with my letter, I don't regret it. See, that's that word regret, metamelamai. He says, I see that this same epistle made you feel bad, if only for a short time. See, sometimes somebody has to straighten us out because we're disobedient. And it's never pleasant for somebody to come and correct us and to rebuke us. And But it's only for a short time, and if it's done right, the end result is positive change. Verse 9 says, Now I rejoice not because you felt badly. I didn't just do this to get on your case. I did this to instigate change. I, I, I rejoice not because you felt badly, lupeo, but that you're feeling badly, or you're feeling badly about it, produced a change of mind. See, that's what we, that's what is happening in 1 Samuel 7. They've lamented, and then Samuel comes along and says, let's not stop with the emotion. You regret it, but use this to move you to change, to turn to God and turn away from the idols. So, it's the, the sorrow, the emotion will turn us from, from, from the sin back to God. For you sorrowed according to God, according to the divine viewpoint standard of God, in order that you might suffer loss from us. Then Paul goes on to say, for the sorrow according to God produces a change of thinking leading to deliverance. That's recovery in the spiritual life. Apart from metamelamai, apart from emotional reaction. Now, then he goes on to say, where a sorrow of the world produces death, which, as I pointed out earlier, is just living like a spiritually dead person. Okay, let's summarize this in four quick points. First of all, when we sin, sometimes it shocks us and we have an emotional reaction. Sometimes it doesn't. The emotion isn't necessary for change. The emotion isn't what convinces God to to forgive us. What convinces God to forgive us is to admit to the sin. If we confess our sin, it doesn't mean if you feel sorry for your sin, if you ask God to forgive you for your sins. It doesn't say that. It says if you admit your sin, God will forgive you. God will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He forgives you for the sin that you admit to, and then he goes beyond that and cleanses you from all sin. So when we sin, sometimes it shocks us. We have an emotional reaction. Sometimes it doesn't. The emotional reaction isn't necessary for forgiveness or to change, but it is a reality. When it is there, it's spiritually vindicated only if it does lead to change. Otherwise, it's just sorrow according to the world. Second point, sometimes we continue in sin knowingly. We just uh, we become stiff-necked like Israel in the Old Testament. We become hardened and rebellious, and God has to discipline us, and he lowers the boom. When God does, point number three, we either have an emotional response because we're sorry we got caught or we're sorry we got punished, or we have genuine sorrow over violating God's character, and this and this alone leads to confession and then to change. Point number four, confession's only the starting point. The point of confession is to make us move towards change. 
This is what repentance is. Repentance is a thought word, whereas regret is the emotion word. Metamelami versus metanoia. So let's go back, plug this into 1 Samuel 7, 3. So they've lamented. They're really feeling bad. They've gone through 20 years of a depression. It's dark. They're under the oppression of the Philistines. It's a miserable time to be alive. And they are lamenting it. They have great sorrow. Then Samuel says to them, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, okay, let's use this for good. If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, this is what turning to God looks like. One, put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you. Two, prepare your hearts for the Lord. How do you do that? Well, you do that through confession, because that's the next thing they're going to do. Prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only. And what's the result? So there's three things. Put away the foreign gods, prepare your hearts, and serve him only. And the result, he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So what did they do? They went home and said, Bible class was great today. Let's watch the news. What'd they do? They went home and they cleaned house. They got rid of the idols. They made a change. And they served the Lord only. Now the next verse... Going back real quick as we wrap up in 1 Samuel 7. The next verse, verse 6, So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, poured it out before the Lord, and they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. What's that? That's confession. That is how they prepared their heart. They confessed their sin. Now they're cleansed from the sin, they're focusing back on God, and they can go forward in their spiritual life. And what's going to happen in the rest of the chapter is God's going to give them the victory over the Philistines. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to see how consistent your word is uh, from Old Testament to New Testament, the importance of cleansing from sin, and then not just thinking that we've arrived because we've confessed and we're back in fellowship, but to move forward with obedience and uh, doing what your word says to do. Uh, Change is possible. Change is real if it's done in humility and under the power of God the Holy Spirit. And we pray you'll challenge us with what we've learned tonight. In Christ's name, amen.